I'll be reading from James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and make and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. Thank you so much for your return this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed your lunch, breaking taco, or whatever it was that you did. That's just what we did, so, uh, and, and we enjoyed it. It's good to have you back. Uh, but one quick word of explanation. People have been coming to me by the ones, <laughs> asking where your outline is, and uh, for two reasons. Number one, Sharon was out of pocket this week. She's the only one who knows how to run the copier. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding about that. Uh, really, the main reason is because this is going to be more of a narrative lesson. It's not really conducive to the structure of an outline, and I think you'll see that as we get into it. I want us to deal with our text this afternoon. It's a, certainly an eternal truth that each of us appreciates, and I believe the older we get, the more we appreciate it. The text states at least two or three immutable truths. Number one, James acknowledges that time is passing. Secondly, that it's passing quickly. And thirdly, there is nothing at all that we can do about it. It's going to continue to rush by at a breakneck speed. Heard about a doctor who was giving a prognosis to one of his patients, and he said, Sir, I'm sorry to tell you, I have some bad news and some really bad news. And the patient looked somewhat shocked, and he said, Okay, well, give me the bad news first. And the doctor said, Well, the bad news is you have 24 hours to live. The patient swallowed hard, and he paused. And then he said, well, it can't get any worse than that. What's the really bad news? He said, I should have called you yesterday. (laughs) The Bible says that the general life expectancy for the average human, this is Psalm 90 in verse 10, by the way, if you want to check it out, is three score and ten years, which, of course, translates into 70 years. And then it also acknowledges that by reason of strength, you might live to be four score years, which is 80 And I realize that that was written a long, long time ago, but it's still right in the range of the average life expectancy for people today. In fact, I looked it up this past week, and it's still pretty close to to what we experience in terms of of, uh, mortality rates, life expectancy. I'm saying this to not get us overly concerned about how much time we have left, or if, in fact, according to David's tabulation, we are already living on borrowed time. That's not the point of our study this together this afternoon. I'm doing this to do, hopefully, what James did in our text, and that is to get us to thinking about the tremendous rate of the passing of time. The image that James uses here in this text is that of a teapot or a pan of water that's been brought to a boil. And you can even do that today. You can easily see the steam above the pot or the pan, but long before it reaches the ceiling, guess what? It's gone. It vanishes away. And James says, you know, our our lives are like that. They're like a mist that appears for a little time, and then, wow, suddenly it's, it's vanished away. I can't believe that we're at the end of another year. Because it seems like yesterday, when I stood up here and I said, I can't believe we're at the end of another year. I mean, we're just doing this, it seems like, every six weeks. It's hard to believe how, time fa- how fast time is passing. And the clock of life is, as James acknowledges, is ticking and we can't stop it. And every year it seems to go faster and faster. Years seem like months. Months seem like weeks. Weeks seem like days. 
It's almost as if we're holding on to time like a well-greased string. And the, and the tighter you try to grip onto that string to slow it down, the faster it moves. And most of you have experienced that. And if not, your mirror will tell you how fast time is passing. And if your mirror doesn't tell you, your friends will. If your enemies don't, your friends will. This rapid passage of time is something that there have been a lot of writers who've written about. Some poetically, some prose and otherwise, but I enjoy reading those who have a good grasp of the tremendous rate of the passing of time. And I think a person who understood it better than any philosopher out there was a little woman by the name of Irma Bombeck. She really understood this concept of, the, of time passage, and, and she made us laugh, especially about, about aging. But sometimes, folks, Irma didn't just make us laugh, sometimes Irma made us cry. And she wrote, I think, one of the most incredible pieces that's ever been written. In a little book entitled, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, Why Am I in the Pits? The title really tells you all you need to know about the book. And the name of the piece is, When Did the Child Become the Mother? And the Mother Become the Child. And in it, she's describing the changing relationship between her as a daughter and her own mother. And, and here's what she said. When does the child become the mother and the mother become the child? When indeed? Does it begin one night when you're asleep and your mother is having a restless night and you go into her room and you tuck, it, tuck the blanket around her bare arms? Does it appear one afternoon when in a moment of irritation you snap, how can I give you a home permanent if you won't sit still? If you don't care how you look, I certainly do. Or did it come that rainy afternoon when you were driving home from the store and you slammed on your brakes and, and your arms sprang protectively between her and the dashboard and then your eyes locked in a sad knowing way Irma says the transition comes slowly as it began between her and her own mother the passing down of duty suddenly you're spewing out the familiar phrases learned at your mother's knee some like these of course you're sick don't you think I know when you're not feeling well I'll be over to pick you up and take you to the doctor around 11 and you be ready or so where's your sweater you know how cold the stores get with the air conditioning. That's the last thing you need is a cold. Or do you have to go to the bathroom before we go? Why not go anyway just to get it over with? Or if you're not too tired, we'll shop. Did you take your nap this morning? Now when you get tired, you tell me and I'll take you home. You know I can't shop when you stand on one foot and then the other. Did you really tuck her arm in yours, nearly pulling her feet off the floor? And of course she rebels at all this mothering. I'll thank you, Missy, to let me make my own decisions. I know when I'm tired, and when I am, I have enough good sense to go take a nap. Stop treating me like a child. You see, she's not ready to step down yet. But slowly and insidiously and certainly, the years give away, and there's no one to turn to. Where are my glasses? I can never find them. Did I fall asleep in the movie again? What was it about? Would you dial that number for me? You know how I always get the wrong one. Look what I made in macrame class today. I'll make you a sling in blue for your kitchen if you want. And then she adds parenthetically, it's reminiscent of that small hand of plaster of Paris framed over the sofa that I made for her years ago. And then you rebel. Mother, really, you're not that old. You can do things for yourself. Surely you can see to thread your own needle. What do you mean you're overdrawn? Can't you remember to stub out your checks when you write them? You see, the daughter isn't quite ready to carry the burden. But the course is set. The first year you celebrate Thanksgiving at your house and not hers, and you roast the turkey and your mother sets the table. 
The first time you subconsciously turn to her in a movie and say, shh. The first time you rush to grab her arm when she walks over a patch of ice. As your own children grow strong and independent, the mother becomes more childlike. The daughter contemplates it it wasn't supposed to be this way. All the years I was bathed, dressed, fed, advised, disciplined, ordered about, cared for, and had every need anticipated, I wanted my turn to come when I could do the commanding. And now that it's here, why am I so sad? Now you bathe and pat dry the body that once housed you. You spoon feed the lips that kissed your cuts and bruises and made them well. You comb the hair that used to playfully cascade over you and make you laugh. You, you arrange the covers over the legs that once carried you high into the air. Her naps are as frequent as yours used to be. You accompany her to the bathroom and then wait to return her to bed. She has a sitter already planned for New Year's Eve. You never, ever thought it would be like this. And then riding in the car one day with your daughter, she slams on the brakes and her arm flies out instinctively in front of you to hold you back from hitting the dash. Irma ends by saying, oh my heavens, so soon. And so soon indeed. Many of you are there right now. You know what that's like. And you know that it can be an emotionally wrenching experience to see the transition from one generation to the next. But it does, I think, help us to appreciate all over again the truthfulness of James' inspired words. Life is but a vapor. Folks, do you really want to see the incredible passage of time? Then I would suggest that you look at the people who are closest to you in your family. Don't look outside your family. Think of it this way. If you're riding on a fast-moving train and you want to know how fast that train is going, you don't look at the distant mountains. That won't give you any kind of real perspective. No, you look at the ground beside the train and that'll tell you how fast you're really moving. And so it is, I think, with our families. You want to know how fast the, the years are passing? Then you look at your children. And you look at how your relationship with your own children is changing. Look at your brothers and sisters, your aunts and your uncles, your mother and your father, if you still can. And I think that's one thing that makes for a midlife crisis, especially for those of us who are men. Because when you hit your 40s, it's not unusual during that decade to lose your father. And that makes for an emotional impact. And it makes you think about life and how short it really is. You know, I've done a little calculating and I've come to realize that it's not always true what they say about middle age. For some strange reason, 20 years or so ago, I began reading more and more literature about what it's like to be middle-aged. And, and, and I realized, again, that it's not always accurate how they describe what middle age is really all about. The midlife years are actually misnamed, uh, the 40s and the 50s. We think of those as being midlife. The 40s actually are the two-third years. We think of a person in their early 50s as being middle-aged. But think about it. How many people you know of that live to be 100 plus? So in actuality, 50s is not really the middle age for the most of us. Now, isn't that a great way for a preacher to mess up a perfectly good Sunday afternoon? And some would hear that, and they would say, what a morbid thought to think in terms of mortality and and how quickly time is passing and and the reality that all of us someday are going to meet our maker. But not so. I'm, I'm here to tell you that that's a very important biblical principle that we have to come to accept. And it's all through the Bible. 
On almost every page, there's some reminder that time is passing. It's passing quickly. And every one of us needs to be ready for when that day comes. For example, in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, King David wrote about it in these words. He said, For as man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. You know, what a graphic way to describe what is a biblical principle, a biblical concept, and and, and an important one, because it has a way of putting everything in a proper perspective for us. It certainly makes the pursuit of materialism empty and meaningless, at least as a primary reason for living. There's just got to be something more important in our lives than the collection of things, right? I mean, we, we realize that there's something deeper and finer and richer in life than just saying he who dies with the most toys wins. There's got to be more to it than that. There have been a number of interesting ways that that message has come across to me over the years. Mia and I got married when we had virtually nothing in terms of material possessions. And I'm proud to say we've still got most of it left. But I also will say this very quickly. The Lord has stuck to his end of the bargain when it comes to Matthew 6, verse 33. You see, part of this contemplative reassessment period that men and women typically go through somewhere around midlife has to do with the meaning of life, the purpose of life. And frankly, folks, material things just don't mean a whole lot. Even something as simple as a game of Monopoly can bring that lesson home to you. Heard about a father who told of his teenage daughter coming home from school one day, and she said rather proudly, Dad, there's a brand new game out. It's called Monopoly. Would you like to play? And he said, I laughed to myself. He said, I hadn't played a game of Monopoly in 30 or 40 years, and she was acting as if it was new. She had never heard of it. So he said, we played Monopoly. He and his daughter and his wife sat at the kitchen table and they played Monopoly again for him the first time in, in over 30 years. And, and he said it was, the, it, it was really a thrill. And, and, and that thrill came back to him and, and then he started winning. And he soon had, you know, Boardwalk and Park Place and St. Charles, you know, Mediterranean and Baltic and all those other properties. And, and he started putting little green houses up all over that board. And soon he was replacing the greenhouses by, with big red hotels, and, and he was just getting money like crazy. And, and he had it stuffed in his pockets, and he had this glazed look in his eye. And his family was squirming because they owed him so much money, and, and he was absolutely loving it. I mean, he was, he was eating it up. He was, he was making them squirm. But then he realized that it was greed that was coming back on him again. Something that he felt he had conquered a long time ago. And then he said it wasn't long before the game ended. And his wife and daughter rolled the dice, hit his hotels two or three times in a row. And before he knew it, they were broke. He had won, and I mean won big. He had been such a lousy sport about it that they made him put the game away when they went to bed. So he says, here I am sitting at the kitchen table at 12 o'clock at night, putting this game away. And he's got this very empty feeling in the pit of his stomach. I mean, because all of this excitement and enthusiasm and adrenaline with, with no place to go. And he takes the property that he's quite proud of and he, and he puts it back in the box. There goes Boardwalk and Park Place and all of his vast real estate holdings. He took the $500 bills that he had in secret places and he puts them back in the box. And he said, I, I still had this, this empty feeling 
deep inside. Then suddenly he realized, he said, this is is not just a game of monopoly we're playing here. This is the game of life. You know, you sweat and you strain and you save and you build and you grow and you, you get bank accounts and property and retirement plans and you may even own a piece of the rock. And all this stuff that goes with living life. And then you're sitting at your desk one day where you seem to be spending most of your time anymore. And all of a sudden there's like a vice that's around your chest. And it's kind of hard to breathe. And I never noticed that pain shooting down my left arm before. And, and, and the fingers are feeling a little bit numb. And there's a little bit of pain in the jaw. I wonder what that is. Or maybe one day you're, you're taking a shower and, and there's a tender place that you can feel in your side and you touch it and it's even more tender than you imagine. Might ought to have that checked out. And, or you're riding down the road one day and you suddenly make a lane change when you shouldn't. And he said, and then all of a sudden in the twinkling of an eye, boom, it all goes back in the box. That is, in fact, the game of life we're playing. Every last dime goes back in the box. Remember, there are no U-Haul trailers pulled behind hearses. We cannot take it with us. And that's why I say the pursuit of materialism as a primary objective is not going to be suitable for any of us, for, for God's people and otherwise. You know, the Egyptians, at least from what I read, tried to take it with them. That's what the pyramids are all about. But unless somebody mortal gets there first and plunders their grave, you can go back to those Egyptian tombs today and you'll see everything that they stored in those pyramids there among the grinning white bones because they couldn't take it with them. And guess what? We can't take it with us either. And this may tell you more about me than you want to know, but I'm not all that concerned about leaving a whole lot in terms of material things to my children either. Because as Paul Harvey used to say, it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. And I can't think of any better way to destroy my children than to deprive them of that need to to build with their own hands and to save and to have ambition and to be disciplined and to dedicate themselves to a task. And I think we're so busy giving our kids what we didn't have when we were kids, we've forgotten to give them what we did have. All of that has to do with the incredible passage of time. So I'm just saying to you this afternoon, from my heart to yours, if you still have your family with you, then cherish the time. Please cherish the time that you can spend with your family. Because time is passing so rapidly. And you want to be there to have that influence on your children that only a mother and a father can have. And to see them grow up. And to instill in them the values that God's people care so very much about. And if your kids are are not all grown and gone, then know that those years are just a fleeting moment on the calendar page of our lives. Know that the skateboard will soon be warped and standing over in the corner of the garage. And no one will have the least bit of interest in using it ever again. The bicycle will be bent and rusted. The swing set will be rusted and crumbling. The halls will be quiet. The beds will be unslept in. No more blaring music emanating from the door. No more giggles in the dark. We'll go through Christmas. And there'll just be two stockings hanging on the mantel. And we know that. And we accept that. And we know that's the nature of humanity. And we are not fighting it. 
But please know that when those children are, are gone, then something very precious has gone out of your life. Because you valued and cherished the time that you could spend with your family so very much. Don't neglect your family. Cherish them. I really believe, folks, if we could grasp these two concepts, our lives would change forever. Here they are. Time flies. And there's nothing in this world that we can do to stop it. Or even to slow it down. But we can spend our limited time here on earth making sure that we have our spiritual house in order. And secondly, nothing in life really matters except, except love for God and for his son and love for mankind beginning with our own families. Here's the way Paul stated it in his second letter to the Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16. For the which cause we faint not, while the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And that really is good news because at the beginning of this message, I, I reminded you that if you, if you look in the mirror, you'll be reminded on almost a daily basis of the rapid passage of time. You'll wonder much sooner than you ever wondered or ever thought that you could wonder, who is that old man looking back at me? But that's the nature of our lives here. While the outward man is perishing, God not in, did not intend for our bodies to be permanent, but he did not intend for our souls to be temporary. And so Paul assures us by saying the inner man, the soul, grows stronger. It is renewed day by day. Outward man grow, growing weaker, but he said the, here's the infinite possibility in Christ. Here is the probability if you are living in Christ, and that is that the inner man, the soul, is getting stronger every day that you live. And that's why it's so very important that we when we sing this song of encouragement in just a moment, that you respond and you not delay your obedience if you need to make your life right with God in any way. And that's not to give the preacher an ego boost. It's not to pad the statistics in the church bulletin. But because getting ready to meet God is the single most important thing that you need to be doing right now at this moment in your life. Because time is running out. Tomorrow's sun may never rise to bless our long-deluded sight. This is the time will then be wise. Be saved, O, tonight. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. No, the present only is our own. So live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in tomorrow. For the hands may then be still. If you need to come in any way, we beg you come while we stand and while we sing.